So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old, on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have have said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus." And when they had prayed, the place they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Can you imagine being there? That would just be phenomenal, right? You're in the heart of Jerusalem. This lame man is healed. The crowds are like in wonder. They're amazed. You have the Jewish religious leaders coming to get Peter and John, which was like the supreme court of the Jewish people. Uh, the Sanhedrin, and so all this going on, and you have all these people coming to faith in Jesus. It was remarkable. Let's look at this big idea. The Holy Spirit empowers courageous deed and word ministry that exalts King Jesus and his kingdom. Let's start with that first part, the Holy Spirit empowers. Before Peter and John, uh, you know, really before Peter, he's, he's the one who did the talking, started to address the Sanhedrin. Luke, the author of Acts, um, he says that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit in verse 8. And then in verse 31, Luke notes once again that all the believers were filled with the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? What does this mean? Well, from what I can tell in the scriptures, it means one of two things, right? Um, in some cases, it means this first thing. In other cases, it means the second thing. So the first way that we can define being filled with the Holy Spirit is the initial entrance of the Holy Spirit into a believer's life at conversion. So that's one way the Bible uses that phrase, filled with the Holy Spirit. Another way um, that we understand what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit is this. It can refer to the Holy Spirit having his way in the thoughts, attitudes, motivations, words, and actions of a believer. And I think it's this latter definition that... Luke is explaining here in Acts, because they were already believers. They already had the Holy Spirit dwelling in them, right? Now, there were new ones coming to faith and were receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, but when he's talking about the believers, they've already had it. Maybe an analogy will be helpful. Um, So this past Monday, my oldest son Elijah had a baseball game, and after that baseball game, there was a girl there uh, who had a son on the team who I went to high school with. And she said to me that, oh my goodness, to 
she watched me play basketball in high school. She said to watch Elijah play is like watching you all over again, is what she said. And then she said, um, Elijah, I guess, put his arm around one of his teammates when they struck out. She said, I specifically remember you doing that to one of your teammates to encourage them. She said, he reminds me so much of you, I cannot even call him his name, Elijah. I have to call him Little Shane is what she calls him. So now, I just had somebody else say that about Isaiah. Now, did Elijah, did he, all right, so in terms of my DNA and Elijah, has there been any point at his, in his lifespan that he had more of my DNA or less of my DNA? No, he's always had the full amount of my DNA. Now, there are times, though, where he is so acting in alignment with the DNA that he has received from me that to really look at him is to look at me, right? I think this analogy, it's not perfect, no analogy is, but I think it's helpful because here's the thing. When we, we receive the Holy Spirit at conversion, we receive all of the Holy Spirit. We don't receive like part of the Holy Spirit, okay? We receive all of the third person of the Trinity. All of him comes to live inside of us. However, there are definitely times in our life where the image of the Holy Spirit is more reflected in our thinking, behaviors, our thoughts, or in our words, right? So, the Apostle Paul, in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, he tells the Ephesian believers, he says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now again, it must mean let the Holy Spirit control you. Let the Holy Spirit control every aspect of you. It can't mean receive the Holy Spirit. They already have the Holy Spirit, right? And then, you know what he said before, be filled with the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 5? Anybody know this? Nobody knew at the last service. At least they didn't voice it. Anybody know? Don't be drunk with wine. Now, what on earth is Paul doing here? He's talking about being filled with the Holy Spirit and then not to be drunk with wine. Were the Ephesians raging alcoholics that Paul had to address this issue with them? No. What Paul wanted the Ephesian believers to do is compare and contrast being filled with the Holy Spirit and being drunk with wine. Now, check this out. What happens when a person is drunk? What happens when a person has alcohol just coursing through their body? It takes total control of them, doesn't it? It takes total control of what they see. We've all heard the expression beer goggles, right? It takes control of what people perceive. It takes control of how people walk. It takes control of how people talk, right? Their speech becomes slurred. It takes control of how a person behaves. It takes total control of them. Now, What's the difference between alcohol intoxication and spirit intoxication? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 that spirit, or, uh, alcohol intoxication leads to debauchery, which is in way extreme overindulgence in uh, sensual pleasures, especially sex, right? Spirit intoxication, however, leads to, Paul tells us, knowing the will of God and then um, knowing the will of God, and then, yeah, and understanding the will of God leads to wise living. I think that's on your, your screen. 
The reason the first Christians were able to do such extraordinary things is because they were intoxicated by the Holy Spirit. They were, they were so full of the Holy Spirit that it was controlling their total person, every aspect of their life. So, this is important. It's possible to possess the Holy Spirit but not be filled by it. It's possible to possess the Holy Spirit and not be filled by it. Now, how do you know that you're living filled with the Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit takes control and has ultimate sway. It has ultimate influence over your marriage, over your parenting, over your way you work, the way you play, over your sexuality, over your finances, your resources. It has it all. Now, it is to say to the Holy Spirit, and I'll quote a song here, you can have it all, Lord, every part of my world. Take this life and breathe on this heart that is now yours. It is to pray sincerely this prayer from Richard Foster. Let me read it to you. Today, O Lord, I yield myself to you. May your will be my delight today. May your way have perfect sway in me. May your love be the pattern of my living. I surrender to you my hopes, my dreams, my ambitions. Do with them what you will, when you will, as you will. I place into your loving care my family, my friends, my future. Care for them with a care that I can never give. I release into your hands my need to control, my craving for status, my fear of obscurity, Eradicate the evil, purify the good, and establish your kingdom on earth in Jesus, for Jesus' sake, amen. So I ask you this morning, can you pray this prayer sincerely from your heart? Can you sincerely pray this prayer from your heart? If you can't, what barriers are keeping you from being able to just like, I'm all in, right? What barriers are keeping you from it? The Holy Spirit empowers. The Holy Spirit provides courage. Three different times our passage mentions the word boldness. The first occurrence is when the Jewish religious leaders marveled at the boldness by which Peter addressed them. The second occurrence is when the believers asked for boldness from the Lord to continue courageously speaking about Jesus even though they were being threatened by the Jewish religious leaders. The third occurrence comes when Luke uh, says that the believers were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. So the connection is clear, isn't it? The Holy Spirit provides believers with courage to spread the good news about King Jesus and his kingdom. What is courage? What is courage? I appreciate the, the dictionary's definition of courage. The ability to do something that frightens one. That's what courage is. What I appreciate about this definition is it uh, makes it clear that courage includes fear. Courage includes fear. Courage is doing something that you're terrified of in spite of all that terror. It takes no courage to do something you're not afraid of. And so if you don't have fear, you don't have courage. Can't, the courage can't exist 
if uh, fear doesn't exist. Now, the first Christians showed tremendous courage, didn't they? Think about what they were doing. Just a few months ago, the same ruling council, the Sanhedrin that crucified Jesus, you have Peter addressing and talking to. And Peter's not mincing words. He is clear. He is direct. He is not saying something and then backtracking. No, he's saying, you crucified Jesus, and he's the Messiah. They were, they were seriously like flirting with death. That's what they were doing. There was so much risk in doing this. They were basically walking into a death sentence. Talk about courage. At the very least, they would be beaten and in prison, and in prison they were, weren't they? And what's interesting is when these first Christians, Peter and John, they get out of prison and they get back with their people, what did they pray? Did they pray that the suffering would be removed from them? No. They prayed that in spite of the suffering, that they would still uh, be a witness for King Jesus and his kingdom. This is courage. Don't you know Well, let me say this, and then I'll make that statement. Uh, I think we have a tendency to read Acts, and we, we have a tendency to think that when the Holy Spirit came inside those first Christians, that it instantaneously removed all fear from their hearts. Nothing could be further than the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. They wouldn't have had to ask God for boldness if that were the case. They were praying for boldness, courage to continue doing what they needed to do. You need to hear this. Living for Jesus requires you to do many things scared. How do you know you're living for Jesus? You're doing a lot. You're white-knuckling a lot of things. It requires you to do things scared. We have a tendency as people, we want to like i got to get over my fear somehow and get to a place where I feel okay, and then I can move forward with what Jesus wants me to do. No. Do it terrified. You know how many Sundays I've gotten up here terrified to preach? I've had panic attacks up here preaching. I've had them before I've come up here to preach. So many Sundays I've white-knuckled a sermon. But I believe God wants me to do it. I do it scared, right? So let me ask you this. What would you do in your life to exalt King Jesus in his kingdom if you knew you couldn't fail? Why aren't you doing it? Here's another question. Man, it's silent in here, isn't it? You know what that tells me? The Holy Spirit is moving. Mm. Let me ask you another question. How would Jesus live your life if he were you? Dallas Willard said that's a better question than asking what would Jesus do um, in a situation because you're not Jesus. What would he do if he were you? If he had your talents, your gifts, your resources, your family, your job, what would he do if he were you? Now, does the Holy Spirit provide us with courage so that we have power to do whatever we want to do? No. 
The Holy Spirit equips a person for deed and word ministry. Acts 3 records Peter and John healing this lame man. We talked about this, right? Um, And then Acts 13.10 tells us that the crowd, they were filled with wonder and amazement. What was Peter doing when he healed this lame man through the power of the Holy Spirit? He was doing deed ministry. This is what deed ministry is. What is deed ministry? It's, the meeting, it's meeting the needs of the hurting, the needy, or marginalized through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what deed ministry is. And here's what we see. Time and time again in Jesus' ministry and in the ministry of the early church, we see deed ministry opening up the doors, priming the pump for word ministry. It's what we see. It's such a pattern. It, you read through the Gospels, it, this pattern's like almost on every single page. Now, um, we see this in our chapter, right? Like, look, um, <laughs> Peter, he seizes the opportunity. Oh, well, what is word ministry? Word ministry is the sharing of the good news about King Jesus and his kingdom, which includes what Jesus has done to make it possible for people to live under his rule and enter his, his eternal kingdom. In our passage, the deed of, ha- of healing the lame man, what happened? The crowd rushed over to Peter and John and the lame man. And they're amazed. Peter takes the opportunity now to do word ministry and tell them it was Jesus, the Messiah, who they crucified, who just healed this lame man. Right? And then more word ministry happens when the Sanhedrin comes over, and now Peter and John are able to tell them about Jesus and his kingdom. I've personally experienced deed ministry priming the pump for word ministry. So 12 years ago or so, um, I was listening to somebody teach. And on the way home, I was absolutely compelled because it was, it was, the the teacher was talking about Jesus' authority over illness and sickness. And so I was compelled by a vision (laughs) that came into my head. I visualized going to my grandfather's house and standing in front of my grandfather holding his cheeks in my hands while he sat upright in his chair to, uh, and praying for him that God would remove his prostate cancer, right? So I get this vision, and, you, and then you start, the, the, the wrestling begins, right? Like, is this from you, God? Is this something my mind is doing? Um, that would be really weird. Uh, how do I... You know, my grandfather's not a Christian. Uh, how do you even bring up the talk? You know, the topic like, do I call him and like, hey, Grandpa, uh, I'm just gonna stand in front of you. You're gonna be sitting upright in a chair. I'm gonna hold your cheeks and just look in your face. You know, like, how do you even bring that up? So I'm wrestling, but I felt so compelled, and I felt like, and I was terrified. Like, what would he think of me? Would this rub him the wrong way? Would it be counterproductive to him coming to faith? All those thoughts, right? Um, But I still felt like this inner, like, I have to do this. And I had the thought, how could I shrink back in, in fear if this could be the vehicle by which God wants to heal my grandfather of prostate cancer? So what I did is I decided I'm going over there right away because I knew if I waited, what would happen? I wouldn't do it. So I go over there, and I go in his house, and 
I just say, uh, hey, <laughs> this might be weird, as how I started. You might find this weird. Um, I, believe that God, I believe that God wants me to pray for you, you know, it, with your cancer you know, battle here. And I believe he's given me a specific way to, to pray for you. Um, and I explained it to him. I'm like, how do you feel about that? Is that something you're okay with? He said, yes. All right. So, so I'm standing there. I'm holding his face in my hands, and he died right on the spot. That was so joking. That was so joking. I was so joking. I could not resist that. I'm typing my sermon. I'm like, I've got to say this. I'm laughing at my computer. I cannot wait to say this. Everything is true except that part. So, (laughs) Isaiah on the way over here, he said, don't ever tell a joke like that again. So anyways, I'm, I'm, I'm holding my grandfather. <laughs> uh, that probably was not a Holy Spirit driven or led. May not be the appropriate use of humor in a sermon. Anyways, I'm holding my grandfather by the cheeks, praying for him, and I pray for him. And then I visited for a little bit, and then I had to go, right? Um, but it wasn't long after that we got the report that he was cancer-free. And then um, what happened was, I'm not joking about that, no. That, that would be horrible. Uh, that last one was pretty horrible too, but I don't know why that would be more horrible. Um, anyways, so what ended up happening is like for the next year, year and a half, he was cancer-free. The cancer did come back, but some of you may have heard me told it, tell, uh, have heard me tell this story. Um, he accepted Christ, because I had shared the gospel with him, you know, along the way, but he accepted Christ. It was like, it was on my birthday, it, it, he called me and told me the news, and it was a month, three weeks prior to him dying. And so, now, am I 100% certain that God used me to, in that prayer, to heal him? No, we can't be 100% certain about those things. However, when I think about me hearing this message, me like just like I have to do this, me given a specific vision of actually how I had to pray him like with, with him physically that then he, he, the cancer goes away from him for a long enough time that he is able to receive Jesus as Savior and Lord prior to his death. And then I performed his funeral, which was the first one I ever did. Talk about anxiety producing. Um, do it scared. Did it scared. I did it terrified, Right. I start to think that it's more reasonable to conclude, and it takes less faith to believe that that was the hand of God than it does to believe that that was just all coincidence, right? So, why do I share this story? Because I believe that deed ministry, that prayer, and what God did in his life opened up the door for the word of God to actually be received in the heart of my grandfather. You see, word and deed ministry, they go together. They are meant to go together. Um, If we only engage in deed ministry, needs will be be met, but people's ultimate need of having Jesus as Savior and Lord will go unmet. And uh, Paul tells us in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. 
However, if we, I, I feel like I've preached this from the beginning. However, of my career as a pastor, by the way, however, if we only engage in word ministry and don't engage in deeds that open people up to hearing the word and really considering it, and that provide evidence that what we claim is true, our message will likely fall on deaf ears. It's not either or, right? We see this in Acts 4. What did they pray for in Acts 4? Word and deed ministry, that they would be courageous in both of these. Look at this, verses 29 and 30. Now, Lord, look on the threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. This is word ministry. But then check out this verse. By stretching out your hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. This is deed ministry. All right, last point, and we'll wrap it up. The Holy Spirit exalts King Jesus and his kingdom. Um, so I've explained before many times this year that this, the focus for our church this year, the theme has been let there be light, a year of clarity, a year of hope, a year of growth. And the reason we're doing this sermon series on the Holy Spirit is because you have told us that we, you need clarity on the Holy Spirit. Now, I believe that the Holy Spirit is partly to blame for being the most misunderstood member of the Trinity. It's partly the Holy Spirit's fault. John 15, 26 says this, and this is Jesus saying that in that verse, that the Holy Spirit will testify me. John 16, 14, Jesus said the Holy Spirit will glorify me. What does this mean? This means one of the main jobs of the Holy Spirit is to shine a spotlight on Jesus. Um, You ever... Anybody like driving through, like, uh, wealthy neighborhoods at, and just, like, looking at the houses and landscaping and the beauty that you can see in some of those neighborhoods? I, Mary and I love doing that. You can get some landscape ideas and look at houses that you'll never be able to afford to live in, nor I don't think I would want because that's a lot of maintenance and a lot of headache. But anyways, um, they're beautiful, right? Well-designed, crafted. Um, if you do it at night um, and there's spotlights on the house, Houses, right? You're not driving by and just like, man, that's an amazing spotlight. Did you see? That's got to be 400 lumens. I bet you it's a four-watt bulb in there. That's a nice spotlight. You're looking at the houses, and you're like, wow, look at the architecture. Look at the well-manicured lawn and the landscaping. This is what the Holy Spirit does to Jesus. He so throws the focus on Jesus. He shines the spotlight on Jesus. How do you know that the Holy Spirit is living inside of you and filling you? Well, one way you can know is that Jesus is becoming increasingly more beautiful and wonderful to your mind and heart. That's how you know, because that's what the Holy Spirit does when it's having its way. It's, it's not going to get you to think about, Holy Spirit, you're amazing. Jesus and his kingdom is amazing, right? Now, do you more and more understand how great and good Jesus is? Do you more and more want to live for him and give it all to him and say Jesus anything? Do you more and more want to shine a spotlight on Jesus yourself? Do you more and more just have this craving to see other people see the greatness and goodness of Jesus Christ? If you do, this is the Holy Spirit doing this all in you. Um. What's, what's awesome about the words and deeds 
in this passage that we, we looked at, notice how they're all about exalting Jesus and his kingdom. They're all focused on Jesus, the deeds and the words. The words, it's obvious it's focused on Jesus. How do the deeds, the healings, the miracles shine a spotlight on Jesus and his kingdom and exalt it, right? Well, let me, re- let me just, I didn't read these two quotes last service, but they're good, and I'm going to read them. German theologian, Jürgen Moltmann, that's a name, wrote in his book, The Way of Jesus Christ. He writes this. When, I love this. When Jesus expels demons and heals the sick, and we could add like when the apostles do it, he is driving out of creation the powers of destruction, and he is healing and restoring created beings who are hurt and sick. The lordship of God to which the healing's witness restores creation to health. This is, I love this part. Jesus' healings are not supernatural, supernatural miracles in a natural world. They are the only truly natural thing in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. Finally, with the resurrection of Christ, the new creation begins, pars proto toto, that means part and whole, with the crucified one. Tim Keller puts it this way. With the miracles and the deeds ministry of the apostles of Jesus, we are, we, they were all a reminder of what once was prior to the fall in a preview of what will eventually be a universal reality once again, a world of peace and justice without death, disease, or conflict. So is it the big, miraculous deed ministry things that you know, shine a light on Jesus and his kingdom? No, even the small things. Like when you care for the hurting, when you feed the poor, when uh, any, any little act fueled by the Holy Spirit to serve somebody else in need points to the day when all needs will be met and there will no longer be, be the needy. The big idea, the Holy Spirit empowers courageous deed and word ministry that exalts King Jesus and his kingdom. you got to come back next week or tune in online because we're really going to talk about um, how, what's our role in being filled with the Holy Spirit. How do we partner with the Holy Spirit so this big idea actually becomes true of us? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, God the Father, Holy Spirit, we are grateful for you. Thank you that you are here um, in us and in our midst. Holy Spirit, we thank you for the, the comforting, comforting work you do upon our hearts and also the, the challenging work that you do on our hearts. Lord, I pray that we, as Abundant Life, we be made up of members of, of individuals who are being empowered by you, Holy Spirit, and who are living courageously and engaging in deed and word ministry that exalts you, Jesus, in your kingdom, so that more and more people enter in, so that more and more your kingdom ways manifest themselves in our community for your glory, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.